Welcome to episode 490 uh, with my guest, Policeman Andy. This interview was recorded actually a long time ago, but I felt like this was uh, an interview that could be beneficial for for people to hear, given everything that's going on right now. Uh, maybe beneficial isn't the right word, but uh, certainly interesting, and um, we don't often hear from policemen, uh, certainly not ones that are um, like Andy. And that doesn't mean that there aren't other police officers like Andy, but uh, so often we look at the news and we think, you know, we look at the actions of police men and women, and, you know, when it's something that is not good, we think, what the fuck is wrong with them? What, what? Are they thinking? And I think if we're to improve as society, it's not helpful to just write a group of people off without wondering what is it like to be in their shoes? What is it that is affecting them? Were they born like that? Were Did something happen to them? Was it on the job? Was it something outside of work, and while Andy doesn't fit the profile of the police that uh, are problematic, he probably has better insight into their personalities, or at least what their experiences are, than somebody who's not on the police force. And, uh, you know, Andy, Andy was very adamant in saying that this is just his experience as being a policeman. And uh, he has since retired, but uh, this episode was recorded a week after Sandy Hook. And that was one of the reasons I had decided to air it then, because uh, as I say in the introduction to it, um, sometimes we don't think about the effect of seeing and experiencing traumatic things has on first responders. And um, uh, the other thing that we've included in this week's episode is a new survey uh, around racism. And uh, <laughs> it is from from both sides, both people contributing to it and um, people experiencing it. We've added two new surveys in the last month. The pandemic survey and the racism survey. And I look forward to, in a month or now, the lake of fire and the locust survey. Oh, the last week has been so... I know There's not even a w- overwhelming... I don't think I have ever taken so many sad naps in my life. And a sad nap is a little different from a regular nap. Uh, sad naps, your mouth and your eyes stay open and uh, there's a little bit of light thumb sucking. Probably not a good uh, week to be weaning myself uh, down to a lower dosage of lamictal. And I don't know if if the numbness and the sadness I'm feeling are being compounded by doing that. Um I don't know. I don't know. It's hard to know. Is it the lamictal? Is it the 
broken political system under the guidance of a narcissistic... I don't even know what the words are. Is it, is it the lack of choice of good leaders for our political future? Is it the plague? Is it the brutality? Or is it people in power still denying that our planet is slowly roasting like a marshmallow? So many things to think about. This is an awful moment filled out by a gender-fluid person who refers to themselves as Polar Express Wreck. And they write, I've been hospitalized twice, uh, 5150. My first time, I had told my mom about my intent. The second time, I experienced minor serotonin syndrome and lost consciousness. The routine of checking vitals and mental state was a regular occurrence throughout the day. Uh, right when we woke up, a nurse would pop their head in and ask us a series of questions. One of them was, do you hear any voices? To which my roommate responded with, yeah, one telling you to get out and let me go the fuck back to sleep. That had made me smile in a place where I didn't think I could. I love when you guys fill out surveys that that have moments of, of levity and, uh, difficult circumstances and and um i know everybody has a lot on their plate uh but if you could go fill out surveys especially the happy moment survey the love survey the awful some moment survey uh the racism survey those are are ones that i am really trying to focus on lately and uh it's been slowing down the number of people filling filling them out and you can you can do it at our website metalpod.com you'll see a little uh drop down menu for uh for surveys this is from the newly created uh, racism survey and i just created it yesterday so there haven't been many people filling it out and mostly um it has been uh white people filling it out uh about their experience of uh being racist and this one was filled out by a guy who calls himself uh, Dane. And of course, this this is n- not the one that I am talking about. This one is is different. And uh, he's in his 50s. And he writes, I was 16. I took a wrong turn at 43rd Street and the Dan Ryan. That's an, an area of the inner city in Chicago. And inadvertently went into the Robert Taylor Homes complex. Uh, Robert Taylor Holmes was a really intense public housing. Um, Just people piled on top of people. They've since been torn down, but it was a really, really um, sad, scary place for for many years. Um, uh, He writes, I was attacked by a mob of African Americans that broke every window in my car. I was lucky to get out alive, as were the three other people in my car. Do you remember how it felt when it happened? I feared for my life. How do you feel about it now? Angry that most people say that because I'm white, it was not racism. Any thoughts or feelings you'd like to share? Racism is not confined to one race. That's a pretty inflammatory one to read right out of the gate, but I wanted to read this one because this is something that... It's a debate that still 
rages on for, for many people. And I used to believe, I used to agree with Dane. And the more, I don't know what it was that, that changed things for me. I, I, it was probably emails from you guys, from listeners. And I think that the, the thing at the heart of the issue of using the word racism and some people feeling that it applies or it doesn't apply is we're making semantics more important. You know, we're trying to label what the hatred is. And I would say what happened was definitely hatred. It was criminal behavior. It was unjustified. But I would no longer use the word racism to define it because we have to have a word to describe this systemic victimization and minimizing of people because of the color of their skin. There has to be a word for somebody experiencing a lifetime of injustices, of physical, emotional, mental, and financial harm. And I think the word racism should be reserved for that. You know, if we find another word for that, then maybe racism could include something else. But that is my thoughts on that. And again, Let's not make semantics the most important thing. One of our sponsors for today is BetterHelp.com. And um, as you can imagine, with uh, everything that's going on with the pandemic, uh, they have been getting a lot of new uh, people signing up for it. And they are now actively recruiting licensed counselors. Um, Also, really good news, they can now help people between the ages of 13 and 17 with parental consent at teencounseling.com and we'll put the links to all this stuff under the show notes for this episode so if someone answers that they're between 13 and 17 uh, on the BetterHelp website uh, they'll redirect them over to teencounseling.com to complete the process and basically the teen fills out a questionnaire and then they're prompted to send a message to their parent to obtain consent then they're matched with a counselor and then facilitate communication between the parent and the counselor. Once the parent is comfortable, they provide digital consent, and then the communication becomes private between the teen and the counselor. Private one-on-one communication. And this process satisfies legal requirements in all 50 states, and they currently have 600-plus counselors who are focused on working with the teens. So... Uh, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from this podcast. And uh, yeah, if you haven't tried online counseling, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan. This is from the love survey filled out by Soggy. And they write, I love when I can relax into my sadness and I feel a great wave of peace come over me. When I can really accept that it's okay to feel sadness, I feel that I'm loving myself most deeply. Wow, that is a really, really profound and important description of battling the discomfort of feeling what we don't want to feel. And for so many of us, 
trying to change how we feel is the tool that we go to. And very often that just brings about more negative emotions, feeling guilty that we can't change how we feel, um, feeling like life is passing us by, that we're stuck in a whirlpool of, of negative emotions. But yeah, many times the first hurdle is just accepting that that's how we feel. Uh, and these are some answers from the pandemic survey. Uh, these are answers that people replied to the question, Has have you experienced any moments that have made you laugh or smile during the pandemic? And uh, many of these were filled out uh, in the last couple of weeks, they aren't all necessarily that that fresh. They taste a little stale if you bite into the middle of them. The crust of these replies, very crunchy, feels fresh baked. Uh, this person writes, yes, very many, pretty much daily. My boyfriend makes me laugh over silly things. We're both downs. I think that means that they both have Down syndrome. It's a little sad that no one else gets to join us in any shenanigans, but that's okay. I don't always need an audience to have fun. Another person writes, My ex and I used to love to watch Walking Dead together. We used to imagine what each of our roles would be were there to be a zombie apocalypse. We actually picked out zombie killing weapons in our house for each other and gave them to each other as a joke. One day I told him that I would be useless in an apocalypse because I am gentle and could never kill anything. He assured me that I would be useful when the world ended because I am so good at sewing. People will need clothes, he said, so there would be a really important place for me. Sometimes I look up from sewing handmade face masks and have a long smile, feeling useful here at the end of the world. Thank you for that. I love this this next one. This person writes, uh, lots of moments. The internet is full of people going above and beyond. A video of a man singing happy birthday over a fence to a 94-year-old woman made me cry. I haven't seen that one yet, but it sounds beautiful. This person writes, yeah. The local donkey is a boy, and the little five-year-old I watch, he was like, Ew, he's pooping. Ha <laughs> ha. I was like, No, those are his boy parts. His penis had come out and was so huge it was almost touching the ground, probably because he's a miniature donkey and his legs are short. It was so gross and hilarious, and I, I don't know what to say, but Grassy the Assy makes us smile every day we go to visit gross long penis and all. Another person writes, uh, if someone walks near me without a mask, what I love to do is wait for them to get close to me and then as they pass, I yell, social distancing and watch how high they jump. Another person writes, my divorce party was pretty cute. And then I, I love this one. This person writes, watching our shelter dog fall asleep while looking at himself in the mirror. Every little thing feels like the end of the world. 
The darkness came so quickly. I was so fucking angry. Make me as close to dead as possible. And I felt so powerless. Without the commitment. If there's a word for it. Unbearable. It means somebody else felt this way. The feeling is so intense. It is a lot more work. I was frightened all the time. To feed a child's emotional world. Everyone feels pain. Than it is their superficial world. Everyone suffers. My sexual addiction was the shame. My mom ended up killing that woman in front of me and my brothers. I had to feel that shame in order to feel the pleasure. And I was being a dick to everybody. We are social beings. And the only way you're going to get it out is to cry. We need to be with people. I grabbed them by their throats and led them down to the floor and watched the breath leave their bodies. Maybe well, listen, thanks people. for coming in. <laughs> I'm here with uh, Andy, who is a, a listener and also a uh, California police officer. We're not going to get specific about uh, where where it is that, that that he is, so that he can speak more freely about um, uh, his career. And uh, what what would you like to preface before before we start um, about what it is that you're you're going to share, just in terms of being a, a police officer? Just experiences with dealing with mentally ill, which is surprisingly a large deal of what I have to work with as a police officer, the calls we get, right. people who are out of control, people who are just not dealing with life well. Mm-hmm. They're, um, they're in crisis, whatever it is. It's a family problem. It's, it's drug issues. It's theft issues. When, when we're dealing, when we're interjecting ourselves into people's lives, it's not just because they're a victim. Somebody smashed a window out of their car and their purse is missing. It's uh, what are the causes of why are people doing these things to each other, or why is this family having this problem? And it's and dealing with the mentally ill, suicides, and how we work with you know taking people into protective custody and uh, getting them some help that they need. How do you call for help and what to expect and what not to expect? It's I, I guess my question was uh, less what what we're going to deal with on here. What I wanted you to be able to state is what we were talking about before we started right. recording in terms of this is just my experience. I don't speak for, et cetera, right. et cetera. No attribution to this is policy, this is the way it always is, or this is the way the place that I work for does it. I can't speak for my department. I'm not allowed to unless I officially ask. And you probably wouldn't want to anyway. No, it's not my role. This is just uh, just some experiences. And maybe it can help people through their lives and what to expect and maybe clear up some issues and hopefully it uh, it helps people in their own way. You're how old? I am 43 years old. And how long have you been a police officer? Since I was 20 years old. Long time. Uh, the same force the whole time? No, I... Grew up in Orange County, more or less. That's where I went to high school. Was interested in high school um, for whatever reason. It's growing up watching Emergency and Chips, these L.A.-based shows of people going out and rescuing people and helping people. And if you were to go back and watch Emergency today, you see how it's all filmed on the Universal Studio lot, practically. (laughs) And Chips is... When they were building, I guess, probably the 210 freeway, it's all them on an empty freeway. It's all sterile. They never point their guns at people. And it's just people living this sort of lifestyle of helping people. And somehow it infected me. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to get into that. And I 
did the police explorer thing in high school and decided that's what I wanted to do. So I was pretty goal-oriented from the beginning. The police explorer thing? It's uh, Many agencies have teenagers, an offshoot of the Boy Scout program for older kids, where teenagers are volunteering, wearing a uniform, going on ride-alongs, learning. No real law enforcement function at all, but it's a, a youth version, a cadet corps, so to speak. Oh, that's got to be exciting. It can be. I thought it was. Um, I would have done it if I wasn't high <laughs> in high school. It sort of probably prevented me from getting high. I knew all the stoners. I hung out with them, but I never, I never got into that. It kept me out of a lot of trouble that I probably would have, you know, sought out. So you knew early on that this is something that was, if not definitely what you wanted to do, a possible, a good possibility. This is what you wanted to do. Yeah, I started preparing for it, and little things like, well, I probably should learn Spanish. So instead of taking German. Which sounds more like an interesting, more interesting, thing, you know, language to learn. I took Spanish, and uh, planned. Well, what university has a criminal justice program, and where do I want to live? And just so I started, you know, with my own personality traits, planning out my life, whatever that's. Um, so somebody could diagnose me with something. Yeah. Have you regretted your choice of becoming a police officer, ever? Ever. There's times when emotionally it just drains you you get just tired you're being a baby i know it's so just toughen up <laughs> end suck of interview. it up end of interview suck it up man <laughs> you can handle this i can't imagine i can't imagine the stuff that you that you see and you experience it's an outdoor job and I, that's what when it's every day is different no matter what every day is just an experience it's fun you, it's, you, you like that part of it the unpredictability of it yeah, absolutely. I, I suppose you have to thrive on it, otherwise it would drive you crazy. It's a, it, I guess it's part of maybe a thrill-seeker gene, even though I really don't want to jump out of airplanes or, you know, do uh, jump motorcycles. It's a, um, it's constant change. It's it's working a graveyard shift. You're out hunting. You're out. You're you are a predator looking for prey. You're looking for something to do. You're looking for trouble. They say when the gunfire goes off, which isn't too often in my small world, but when the gunfire goes off, people are going in the opposite direction we're going. We're going into it. And, <laughs> and that's we, not that's not bravery. Maybe it's stupidity. Maybe it's just no, our that's, nature. That's, there's definitely a huge element of of bravery. So so I'm not going to let you get away with, with with that one. Is there an element of stupidity? That I don't know because I would never go towards gunfire but going back to to what you were touching on earlier you said you're looking for trouble i just want to clarify you're not looking to create trouble you're looking to solve troubles to get into things get right. into it we're looking to to engage to talk to people um get curious i've told people and i've explained to people why i've stopped them well i stopped you because of this and here's everything that i see and it's all adding up and now i can see that you're not the person I'm looking for. Go on your way. I tell people I have to be curious. I have to be curious about what they're doing. It's not. I can't ignore things. I have to go by. And why is that person there? What's not adding up? And just, I can't wait for it to come to me. You have to actually engage and be curious. Uh, 
cops like to think of the classic Bugs Bunny era Warner Brothers cartoon of the sheepdog and the coyote, and they both sort of walk in in the middle of the day, hey, how's it going? And they both check in at the same time. The whistle goes off, and then they engage all day, and they do their thing, and at the end of the day, you punch out. And, you know, it's... They go to work to do their job. Are you able to turn your head off when you punch out? Yes. I I work and live in the same town. Where I live, I can separate myself from my work. I rarely carry a gun off duty. It's Just when you're drunk. <laughs> or high or crazy or just angry. Yeah. Just angry in or general. Or nude. Well, <laughs> it's hard to conceal it then. But <laughs> That's why they made the Derringer. That's right. Yeah. The... Uh, Many cops do, and if I lived in a different area, I probably would, but I can turn it off. And my personality, people say, oh, you're a cop? Really? Well, I, I fit a role. I put on the vest, I put on the belt, put on the the uniform, and you go out and you play a role, and you can turn it off off-duty. And one thing I'll maybe we'll discuss a little bit later, it's when we do the fears, those fears come through in dreams. And you wake up in the middle of the night and just the panic and you get you start recreating what could be your mind working out problems or preparing for problems because that's what I think that is. But it's also one thing I discussed in the email with you was uh, it's PTSD in its own way. It's cumulative. It wears on you and it builds and builds and builds and some cops can't release it and some can through a variety of ways. That's but, interesting. I'd like to... I'd like to before we're done, to definitely touch on that because unless you want to talk about it now. Well, let's talk about the video, the penguin. Yes. Uh, this was originally just kind of clue the, the listener into how you and I became acquainted. You had, you had emailed me because I had mentioned a clip from uh, a documentary by Warner Herzog called Encounters at the End of the World. Uh, and there was a scene in it uh, where a penguin is walking away from safety towards certain death. And the makers of the film were saying uh, they had learned years ago they can take that penguin, turn him around, bring him back to the beach where there's food and his community. It doesn't matter. He will still continue walking towards the mountain to a certain death. And they were showing a clip of this penguin walking through town to a certain death and it made me really sad because it reminded me of the mentally ill in that you're trying to tell them you're going the wrong direction, but they're so convinced that they're going the right direction, you sometimes can't tell them. That is the clip I wanted to set up. So you emailed me. I watched it and I was equally sad thinking this poor thing's running off to its death. And I realized, and it was a somewhat of an epiphany after having deal, you know, dealing with mentally ill people for almost two decades that that penguin you can't help that penguin that penguin has its destiny it knows where it needs to go but it, you can't change its mind but when dealing with mentally ill people people who are lost we can grab them by the shoulders pick them up and put them back on the trail and say you know where you need to go that's the ocean that's the nesting grounds this is someplace you've been before let's get you reset to get you all ready to um, get back in the game. And eventually that penguin may wander away again. And there might not be anybody there to help it. But when we see that penguin that's gone away, bring him back. 
help them, get them on that path again, and not just dismiss it. It's difficult to deal with the mentally ill. It's taxing. It's tiring. There's some people who are so deeply mentally ill, the people who are wandering, the just disheveled and just a mess, you can't rationalize with them. No. You can't do anything with them, but you can help them. How? Sometimes it's just a matter of, hey, 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 you know you're not supposed to be here. We need to get you back on track. Just some mere traffic control. Let's get you out of those bushes. That's That belongs to that business, and let's have you walk over here and maybe just sit on the bus stop for a while. Maybe someplace warmer. Um, sometimes it, it can be arresting them. Yeah, you're intoxicated now. We're going to put you in jail. You're going to stay there for the minimum four to six hours. You'll be released, but at least you'll find some home ground. You'll be someplace different, someplace safe. And maybe just uh, not in those people's yard anymore. Equally, there's times when we take them into protective custody. They've gone too far. They're such a danger to themselves that we have to we have to grab them and say, the state has to control you. We have to take you someplace for your own safety. Um, which is so different than dealing with somebody who's intent on hurting themselves. They're people who are just, they're just lost. These, uh, the, the deeply, truly mentally ill that are shuffling around mumbling to themselves, howling at the wind and, uh, you know, living on a steady diet of fortified alcohol, mm -hmm. which still amazes me that we grew up saying, no, you have to have vitamins in this triangle of food and there's people who live their entire existence. All nutritional value comes from fortified liquor, malt liquor that somehow, like a cow eating nothing but grass, you can live on nothing but liquor and thrive. <laughs> it, it, it's surprising. It's amazing. But I digress. Yeah, no, that's okay. Um, there's so many questions I want to ask. Yeah. You know what? Why don't I do this? Why don't I um, I put it to the listeners? I said I'm going to be interviewing right. a police officer. Um Send me any questions you'd like me to ask him. So um, this one comes from Alexis. She says, how does he deal with the normal life when a tough case is over? Does he have any uh, PTSD issues? Well, I think you, you kind of answered that, but do you want to elaborate on that? There's times when over a period of weeks you see a lot of death. The most common death is, oh, paramedics are en route, not breathing, cold to the touch, paramedics get there, yeah, the person's dead. And we have to deal with the family. That's very common. For some reason, over the past two years, I've been to quite a few suicide by guns. For some reason, it seems to be on some uptick. Those are a little bit more difficult to deal with because now it's there's quite a few elements and I can get through some of those cases. The PTSD is it's just cumulative. You're dealing with people in the most stressful situations. You can't control it. You can't help them. There's only so many things you can say, and uh, it just it, it adds up. My department has a pretty good program on dealing with um, trying to keep us mentally healthy. They call it resiliency, being resilient. So just like a, a rubber band, you can stretch beyond the original shape, but sort of goes back to the original shape. And uh, they talk a lot about diet and exercise and sleep. And I I do a lot of running, try to keep myself healthy. And You, you know, look very fit. <laughs> the, uh, like in Zombieland, number one rule, cardio, if you've ever seen the movie. <laughs> you know, you got you to 
And then the running just helps. It frees the mind, and invariably I'm listening to some podcast. I would imagine those endorphins also help calm you when you get into a stressful situation. Yes. And every day after work, I'm doing something, whether I'm going to the gym or just running, just to get that, burn off some of that energy, burn off some of that steam. And most often, by the time I get back, I'm tired. I'm ready to carry on with my evening. Um, that's probably the one of the best ways, and it's it, it helps. I have a friend who works in the L.A. area, and he had to be on the periphery part of that um, Seal Beach nail salon shooting mm-hmm. where the guy went in and killed. It was a, a love triangle, killed his, his uh, girlfriend or wife, and then a bunch of other people. And my friend was there from another agency helping to deal with a... Uh, the family's all coming into this one location saying, uh, yeah, there's been a horrible incident. You need to come to this location, which wasn't the crime scene. And he's watching these families pour in. Everybody's crying and screaming and freaking out and not dealing with oh it. So it's not just one small family. It's, you know, it's room full of people. Dozens and dozens of dozens of people because there were somewhere around it's between a half dozen and 10 people I think that were killed let alone the injured on top of that so he said he's never felt this way before he's been working in a busy town a lot of experience and he said I, I I've never felt this way I can't sleep I'm just I'm changed his agency had support and he worked through those support networks and family life and exercise to burn off some of that energy it still remains in you but I think you can burn it off pretty good. Um, and that that depends on the individual, and they try to hire people who are able to handle it as much as we can. There's no psych test to become Marine Corps infantry, so nobody knows how you'll react to whatever stress that's going to happen in your life. In the military, there's psych tests for higher-level special forces, pilots, to make sure they can handle certain things. But the low level, there's not. So those soldiers come back with a lot of inability to, to work with it. Beyond the, the efforts of the Army or the Marines or the other services, they don't know how to deal with it. Police departments give a lot of effort for resiliency so we can handle it. And we know when we're stretched too far, we can seek help. Can you ever go to your uh, commanding officers and say um i need a week off or i yes there was a time and i well before i started where cops there was no 40-hour week it was you work six days in a row and suck it up and yeah i know something bad happened but you're back the next day if i talked to my boss and said i need a week of sick leave just for mental health they'll work with it and give it to me if i need time off and i've seen officers do it be what, gone for a couple months. What if you say it while you're wearing a Hawaiian shirt? Is that <laughs> and, uh, your case? My bags are packed, <laughs> but uh, this is a special. <laughs> yeah. no, they're, they're, this world is pretty pretty generous to say, especially in California, it's your time, take it. Just uh, let us know what we can do. One of the things that Andy said before we started recording was that th- his, you wanted to preface that this was your experience as a California police officer. Can you talk more uh, uh, about that? 
and without doing any attribution to my own department, I don't speak for them, but just this is what California does. This is typical for a California agency. I can't say that this is the same that's going to happen in Mississippi, in Maine, in North Dakota, because they do different things or different laws. So if I ever say this would work to get the attention you need, I'm referring to what happens in my small county, let alone not seeing what L.A. County might do or what might happen in Miami. Uh, Here's a question from Andrea. What's the most heartbreaking experience you've had on the job? It's probably hard to pick one, huh? This one sticks with me just because it dealt kids. (laughs) No, no, no. I was prepared. Um, I was on graveyard, so it's the end of my shift, Mm, about 5.30 in the morning, baby not breathing, in a, and I hate to say it, but crappy area of town, Mm -hmm. crappy little houses. So I get there first, well before the paramedics, and there's two parents standing there in a house that's neat and clean, but mm, poor, and they go, they point. And so I go in the back bedroom, and there's a crib. And so... As cops, we take in everything. We're supposed to take in everything. It's a crowded, small bedroom, beds taking up the majority of the room, dresser, neat and clean. And then there's a like a bassinet-style crib. There's like two Mylar balloons saying, you know, congratulations, it's a boy, whatever it is. But there's no other furniture for a baby. There's nothing else that you would typically find when... When your wife is going to have a baby, they nest. They create a room. They create a world. They create a comfort zone for this child because it's part of their nature. There's no nesting involved. And in the crib, there's a two- or three-day-old baby just out of the hospital, which died for whatever reason it died. And it's just in that when you put an infant on its back, its arms go up at right angles and its mm-hmm. legs are splayed because that's just the way they are. And it's blue and it's cold. And they said, yeah, we went to bed last night, and it's been, you know, it was down for a couple hours. We didn't hear it cry. We woke up in the morning, and it was dead. And they're they're distraught, but they're not, they just were in shock. When you have a dead baby for the medical training, is they, you never pronounce a baby dead. It's like, no, 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 it's, you, you never, you never pronounce it, because there's always hope. Well, the paramedics arrive, and I... I take it out to them. I say, it's dead. And they go, well, we'll, we'll try. And they they look at it, They do their assessment without starting CPR. And they go, yeah, they agree it's dead. So another officer comes out and takes over the scene. But the thing I remember most is little hands, those tiny little baby hands clenched in fists. As if that baby was somehow struggling to breathe in the middle of the night, just clenched as little baby fists do. And I have two kids of my own. They're both teenagers now. But whenever they were young and they clenched those fists, it was like I wanted to unclench them. I didn't want them to, to make those fists because it it just frightened me. I didn't like it. It seemed like they were struggling. It just bothered me because it's that image. Yeah. And it's that, that child, that baby, that birth, that... Oh, that your, was so... Your kids... My own kids, when they clenched their fists, I wanted, to, I wanted to unclench them. Because it happened after this episode? Yes. I, I, I had one at the time, and I had one after. I see. So I just couldn't, I just didn't want to see that clenched fist. And that's, 
that sticks with me. Wow, that's going to stick with me. <laughs> that, yeah. uh, it's just harsh, and it. Oh, dude, I. Can't. Now, if you had to experience something that haunting every day, do you think it, it would run you out of your career? It very well could. Um, it's not hard. Well, it's not hard. You learn to dissociate, to dehumanize, which is why it gets cops in a lot of trouble because they dehumanize and all of a sudden it's just us and them. It's animals. There's a saying I heard a long time ago. I'm not saying I agree with it, but there's three types of people in the world. There's assholes, idiots, and cops. It's the assholes of the world that make the idiots of the world call the cops. And that just shows how when you're in the, the function of being a police officer, those are, just, those are just a bunch of assholes, and they're just a bunch of idiots. And there's just us, this blue shield of freedom. We're, we're the supermen, and all y'all are just, mm-hmm. you know, nothing. Nobody gets it like we do. Right. I work in a town where about 85% of the officers that work in the department actually live in the town. It's a suburb. It's cop land. All the other agencies, cops, down the freeway towards the uh, the metro area, all not all, but a lot of cops live in town. So it's a safe place. We have our fair share of fools. We're on a busy freeway, so anything can hop off that freeway anytime, and it's between two big metro areas. But you can get away from the work. And there's a lot of cops in town that say, yeah, I work over there in one of the crappy towns down the road. And he says, the only thing that I care about in that town is that machine that prints my paycheck. I don't care about the people. I don't care about the city. I don't care about the streets. I don't care about the infrastructure. I don't care what happens. All I care about is that machine that prints my paycheck. And that's a pretty pretty crappy way to, to go through a career. It's survival because if, if all you're dealing with people that, that are victims one day and suspects the next day, it's it you would just start hating people. You'd have no choice. I would imagine there would be no way to separate that attitude about the the world because, you know, I, I believe how we view the world has everything to do with how we not only feel about things that happen to us, but how we react to things. And you can't limit that. You can't limit your heart to a a mile by mile area because it's just it's not that neat and clean it's it's right well it's separated you just say it's this is that's another world i go behind into my double gate guarded community and hide there even though i don't live behind a gate but it's still that i'm separated i my own little world i go into my own little house and i'm safe here and that's what we should do. And I can't imagine growing up in a place where I didn't feel safe or living where I didn't feel mm-hmm. safe. If somebody broke into my house, I'd every time I saw the front door that was kicked in, I'd be angry. It'd stick with me until I moved. Um, it's. Let me ask another question yeah. from a listener. This is from Carl. Uh, I'd like to know what good cops think of the cops, of bad cops, and best way to deal with it. I guess rogue, rogue cops is kind of what he's asking. What do you what do you do when you see somebody who you know is operating outside of the ethical boundary that is 
clear to you? I haven't seen it in my own department. I'm obligated to say something. Hard as it may be, self-preservation says I have to do it. I've worked in a, a previous agency where they were, they were doing some not shady stuff, but they were a little physically aggressive with people. And just after I left there, it's an incident that happened before I left, but it came to the public after I left, and I had nothing to do with it, thank God. You weren't there when it... wasn't there when it happened, but it got people fired, and it was in the news. And if Rodney King hadn't happened, it probably would have been bigger news, just because it was was local news, but things blow up. Mm -hmm. And... You, you have to report it. And in in my own department, you know the cops. That, I don't say you can trust because that sounds like, well, I can trust you so I can screw around in front of you. But you know the people that are going to behave and do things right. There's things that by law I have to do. If I go out to a domestic violence and there's a victim, male or female, with visible physical injuries, I have to take a report. I have to seek an arrest. I don't have a choice. And if I saw another officer not investigate that properly, I have to take over. I have to do it because I'll lose my job. And there's quite a few scenarios like that in California where these are shall to do, and if I don't, it's a misdemeanor, I get in trouble. So if you went uh, to a call, let's say it's a domestic violence, and the husband is drunk and he takes a swing at your partner, your partner subdues him, cuffs him, and then loses his shit and just starts punching the guy when the guy's subdued. I'd have to report it. But because I I don't want something of experience, I don't want to pat myself on the back. Part of the subduing process is communication and stopping those things to the point of shielding and go, okay, we got him. Okay. You know, it's it's a melee and you've got four cops on one crazy person that's struggling and it's, you know, as people are trying to do stuff, it's like, hey, let's think about handcuffs here, handcuffs, get them in handcuffs mm-hmm. and start bringing people down and communicating. Um, I have to intervene. And otherwise I'd have to say, you need to fill out a use of force report and you're going to document everything you did because I'm not, it's easy in my department because it's supportive and I, I trust the people I work with. You, you must feel lucky that you work where, where you do, knowing how bad it can get in other communities. I chose to work there. I, the first agency I mentioned earlier that had something happen, I was a reserve there, which is I had put myself through the academy. It was my first place. They said, we're going to hire you full time, but we don't have any openings. So you can be a reserve. You'll go through the training. You'll do some work. We'll pay you for certain details, and then when we can hire you full-time, now you'll get your full benefits, full retirement's going to start, all those things. So I left there, and I went to another department, stayed there for about five and a half years, saw the writing on the wall for the finances of that city, and said, I'm going someplace else. So I chose where I work now, and I'm happy with my choice. It, I'm not stuck there. If I were in a place where I was stuck, it'd be a little different, but I'm not stuck. So I, it is fortunate, mm-hmm. and those are the choices that cops have to make. And if you're working for someplace where bad things are happen, you know, happening, you got to go. you got to find something else to do. You can't put yourself in that situation. Have you 
you know, I'm a believer that adrenaline is is one of the most dangerous drugs, also one of the most addicting, because I have found myself sometimes playing hockey, doing things that outside of the rink I, I would never do in a million years, taking swings at people, saying the most god-awful, mean things. When your adrenaline is pumping and somebody does something that physically threatens you and scares you, I know that you can you can react in a way that scares yourself. I'm I'm speaking personally. Right. Have you experienced on the job where where you've had that happen to you, where you've been so scared and full of adrenaline that you've overreacted and and kind of been ashamed later? Yes, and a lot of it, it's could be driving we get way out of control driving it's i got to catch that speeder that person that ran a stop sign and you're going twice as fast as they are to catch up with them to to gain and in the end you're like why was i going so fast um because I, because running a stop sign while certainly illegal i gotta catch is, them. I gotta is catch not, them. it's not like he's got a child in his trunk right it's just it's I got to catch them. That person can't get away, and it's not a pursuit. It's just I got to catch up to them and turn that red light on so they stop. I was uh, at my current place I work now, and it was a graveyard thing, and there was drunk kids in a parking lot. And cops don't deal with physically controlling women too well because we don't feel like we want to hit them or hurt them or take them down. It just doesn't seem it's not in most of our nature. It's cops want to protect people who are smaller more diminutive maybe victims and very often domestic violence is the women are victims sexual assault most often women are victims that's what we want to do is protect them so we have a different look towards them and uh the 16 year old girl was drunk she had her friends with her and i go to grab her arm because she needs to be in handcuffs and she literally took a swing at me or whatever. She grabbed my microphone, which is on my chest. So I have my flashlight, those aluminum flashlights in my hand. And I came up and I was just about to smack her in the, in the head with it. And I was like, <laughs> stop. And I was like, I'm so glad I didn't hit her because it, it just wasn't called for. I could have written my way out of it. But things like that where you're like, okay, I'm trained to do something and I'm going to react. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. No, I don't need to do that because it's going to get me in trouble. And it will look bad. Was it that you were angry at what she had done or it had startled you and it was just kind of second nature? 90% nature, 10% how dare you. I mean, you you little a- bitch. Yeah, how dare you grab me? I mean, and that's what it, that's what you feel. And then you go, wait a minute, I have to, I have to balance. I have to think about that. And when we talk about the stressful situation, how it deals with you later, for the rest of the night, there's anxiety because you got so jacked up. Yeah, it's okay. Okay, now I'm. Now I'm I take it down a notch. So you end up going home, and you're like, okay, I gotta sleep. Gotta sleep. And that's where I don't drink too much. That's where alcohol would really become a problem. Like, okay, I got to drink myself to sleep. How long did, did, say, something like that stay with you where you're playing it over in your mind and kind of beating yourself up for what you almost did? I think it's a good sleep cycle takes care of it. Okay. Just going to sleep and just, okay. But it's still, I can still think of it. I can still get 
uh, you know, emotional about it now. You bring it to the surface. It's it's there, but it's not. But it's such a minor thing. Yeah. I'll, I'll I'll say I've never shot at anybody. I've never been directly shot at. I've been near shots being fired. So you've never, you never killed anyone? No. It's very uncommon. You must... I would imagine, though, in, in even in L.A., it's it, it's uncommon? Overall numbers, it is. Yeah? Uh, on average... You haven't watched Adam 12. I know. Oh, yeah, exactly. Or 24, or Training Day, or any of the real... You, you know, haven't real. seen hippies dancing. <laughs> They're very dangerous. That's true. That's true. Um, I think the ratio is about 50 cops a year get killed by all types of car accidents, stabbed, shot. And I think cops kill in the U.S. somewhere around 400 to 500 a year. And that's that's nationwide. Nationwide. So that's not a lot when you think that New York City has 36 to 40,000 police officers. Yeah. And the overall number of cops in the country are 200,000. If you do the math, it doesn't happen that often. And... And if an officer gets in one shooting, they tend to get into another and another because I have to say they pop their cherry, but they've reacted and done it, and they work in an environment where that happens, it tends to happen again. We had an officer in my current department who got into, I think, two shootings in a month or about a two-month period, and that's rare for the department. Shot at or shot someone? Shot somebody. Did he kill? no, 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 just injured, but it was just... You pop that cherry, it becomes part of your your mindset, and it happens, which is, it, it's weird psychology. It's was it, weird was it called for in both circumstances? Yes. It was justified when you play the scenario out. Yes, it's justified for what it was. It doesn't mean the department was happy with him. I got you. But it's justified. So there are a variety of protocols in certain situations up to the up to the officer, it's a flow chart. It's a quick flow chart in the brain of, <clears throat> excuse me, yes or no, yes or no, yes or no, yes or no. And it ends up being, okay, by policy, it's all good. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you use one of those magic eight balls? Sometimes. Yeah, it's just a randomizer. <laughs> roll, the, roll the dice on the ground and go, okay, snake eyes. Okay, yeah. that's good. Yeah. Maybe. Ask again. <laughs> um <laughs> This comes from Allison, and she asks, uh, is your career or field being more active for making sure officers are doing mentally solid? Um, I I think you kind of answered that one. Yeah, there's there's some, we do the MMPI and other character tests, and they Mm -hmm. want a certain profile. They want people to fit into decision-making and, you know, if you've ever done the MMPI, it's uh, do you have black and tarry stools and would you like to be a forest ranger and some crazy-ass questions. But they want to get a general path of where your moralities are, how you deal with stress, how you deal with people. Um, what does MMPI stand It's a Minnesota multifasal uh, interview mm-hmm. developed in the 50s. It's something like 800 multiple-choice questions. And uh, somehow they they project a chart off of that it. That alone would make me want to shoot people. Yes. <laughs> oh, it's a long test. It's it's painful. The uh, would you fail if you smeared your own feces on the on the paper <laughs> dot, and turned it dot, in? Dot, dot <laughs> a b b b b. <laughs> the 
my the, when I got hired in my own, my current department, they did a thing called the B pad, which was you're going to watch a video and you're going to respond. So it was a classic VHS tape. They had a camera in your face and you're watching a monitor. And one of the ones I remember is your response. Well, there's no reaction once it gets to a certain point. In the video now just sort of freezes and you have to continue for 30 seconds. I think there's a timer and you have to talk. So it deals with can you talk to people and. It was you're responding to a report of a woman screaming. When you get there, this is what you see. The door opens and there's a woman holding a, a baby and she's saying, my baby's dead. It's dead. I know my baby's dead. And then just looks at you. So now on camera, you have to react for 30 oh seconds. God. So it's you have to talk. And if the department's not going to hire you, you just go, duh, I don't know what to do. So it's, oh, this is terrible. I know this is very traumatic. How about you hold on to your baby because, it, you know, the paramedics will be here, but why don't you hold on to your baby for a little bit longer? Can I talk for 30 seconds? Can I negotiate? Can I communicate for 30 seconds? And departments try to give a good judge of character. What can this person do? It's not just how you BS your way through an interview or if you can scam a psych test. They want to see if you can communicate because that's it's all communicating it's all negotiating it's all just yeah. what can you do to not screw up i had a friend i i somebody i know applied to become a police officer and they he used me as a reference <laughs> and dangerous and they contacted me and I said, I don't think this person would make a good police officer because I've seen this guy lose his shit on people and he has an anger problem and he enjoys hurting people. Yeah. And he's not a cop. And I felt good. I didn't feel bad at all about that because I was like, you know what? I have a duty to citizenry as, you know, as much as I liked, I played hockey with this right. guy and as much as I liked him off of the ice. I couldn't be sure that he wasn't going to do some of the things that he did on the ice. Is it somebody you'd want to come to help your mom when she's in distress, your best friend when she's in distress, your wife when she's having a problem, or your own children if they're being mouthy on the street? You figure out who, who's the cop you want to have dealing with these people. You want somebody who's going to be stern and maybe is going to apply force when necessary, but... There's, when you work for a department that supports you, it's great. When you work in a city that supports you, it's great. There's a recent thing in San Francisco that was in their paper about a couple gang detectives are out in the evening looking for people, and they see a couple Hispanic guys walking. So they go up to contact him, and one of the Hispanic guys pulls out a machine pistol, literally a machine pistol, automatic weapon, shoots at them. They shoot this guy. He goes down. He's a felon, which means he can't possess the gun anyway. I mean, and mm -hmm. he's a gang member. Oh, and they learned from an interview with him he was going to go. He was en route right there to retaliate for reshooting that happened to one of his buddies the previous night. So he was a felon with a machine gun with murderous intent who shot at the cops, and they shot at him. And there was a protest. There was a violent smash-out windows protest because the cops killed somebody in San Francisco in the Mission District. You go, how do you work for a community that doesn't support you? That's got to be so angering. For doing the right thing that you lay out that scenario to anybody, you go, that's what has to happen. We have to stop gang members from possessing automatic weapons going to shoot up houses. And you go, that's, 
you, it's insane. How could you work in San Francisco and deal with that? Would you also say, though, that you have to make sure that you police each other so that the resentment that has obviously been built up over decades and mistrust that that community has isn't there, that you, that, that trust is possibly earned back to some degree. I mean, I'm, there are going to be people that are going to hate cops no matter how good of a job you guys do, but isn't it fair to say, though, that the rogue cops have contributed to that mistrust? And historically. I mean, it's it, it's not it's rogue cops. It's, it's just history. Uh, the black community has not got its fair shake from law enforcement over forever. It doesn't mean that there's certainly bad people in the community that need to go to jail, go to prison. Right. Um, but they haven't. How do you change that? I don't know. But you you can individually do your best I to, think give, to give maximum service. And then, uh, okay, today's victim, maybe they're tomorrow's suspect. I don't know. But right now they're the victim. I'll give them everything they need yeah. and see how it works out. Um, let's see. How does he feel about officers who abuse their power? Uh, why does he think this occurs? Why do you think? It could be their nature to begin with. I mean, we'll start from the base. Like they're just they're bullies that always want to just have the extra power. I'll say that there's in in American society, there's probably nobody who has a greater ability to use force than a cop. To actually, the government says it's okay for law enforcement to end somebody's life through a justifiable homicide in the right situation. A judge can deem that after this jury trial and the attorneys have gotten done and the jury says yes, that he can put somebody to death. But a cop can make a split-second decision to go, oh my gosh, flowchart, flowchart, yes, 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 oh my gosh, I have to shoot and take somebody's life. That's part of the nature. Maybe that's part of the the thrill-seeking. It's it's dangerous. It's adventurous. The rogue cop, if that's all they're looking for, they're not going to last very long. Their true nature is going to show, and they're going to get burned out because they're probably not going to get legitimately enough of those repetitions to keep them happy, mm-hmm. or they're going to go overboard trying to make it happen. Um, it has to... It has to be the, the agency has to police it and get rid of them. Um, it's a, okay. it's in, it's internal. Uh, this is an interesting one. What is are, are oh there are actually two? Are are you afraid of any of your fellow officers? Have you ever been afraid of any of your fellow officers? I, I don't think he means that they're going to hurt you, but f- afraid for society. I've seen it in that one agency I said where I left mm-hmm. before it came to the surface. I go, yeah, this is. There's some people here that are just. Mm, they, uh, yeah, I, they don't have anything that I can report uh, them on right now. But this guy's a ticking bomb. Yeah, they're just not. They're. They were hired in, hired in an era by a department that didn't really filter too well. Um, currently, no. That's great. Yeah. Uh, What's your stance on marijuana legalization, and do they feel there's any benefit to legalizing it for medical versus recreational? Libertarian in me says legalize it because I haven't, I don't think I've ever gotten to a physical altercation with somebody who's high. 
Drunk? Oh, yeah. Tweaked out on meth? Certainly. But people who are high just sort of submit. And, okay, I understand. And they're somewhat calm. They're sedated. It's not the. It's not an aggressive. People just sort of uh, get baked and do their own thing. I don't have a problem with it. I don't want my kids to smoke it. I'd prefer they avoid it. I don't want people to be driving around on it, driving around with it. In my town, harvest season just ended, so you could drive around town and smell it. And you're like, it's a pretty noxious smell to smell a garden a couple doors down. It's a, it's a powerful smell. And it's it, very skunky. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to have to live next to that if I were, you know, in my backyard. You go up to some places like Mendocino County where the whole valley, you drive into the valley, you're like, oh my gosh, it just smells everywhere. And if you don't like the smell, you're sort of doomed. That might not be fair to have to have your whole neighborhood smell like, yeah. you know, some good skunky weed in September. But at the same point, it, it should be legalized. Tax it, sure. Um, but I will say that it's California. It's practically legal. And if we stop your car and there's weed in the car and I smell it, I go, well, I'm going to check to make sure it's within what the the law says. And I go, well, there it is. Have a nice day. By the same token, I've pulled people out of the car and found loaded guns. So there's a... A lot of crime that are happening in a lot of the bad communities are it's marijuana related. It's marijuana sales related. You would cut those people off at the knees if it were legal to possess and own and grow and buy from the state store. And the violent marijuana sales, the home invasion robberies, the turf wars that are happening in a lot of towns would end. Best best portrayal of, of cops in a in a movie. The end of watch recently came out pretty good. Um, there's some the whole idea of taking your badge off and getting in a fight with somebody until there's a victor, somebody wins. Not going to happen. I mean, I I can't imagine that happening. But there's some realism the the conversations. I find that um, people hate this Reno nine one one. The banter, the interaction, the funny shit cops do. It's all there. I don't, I don't know where Tom London and those guys got the ideas, but they got a lot of the crap down of just cops screwing around and doing things and having fun. That's take that as a lighthearted because you know, there's a lot of effed up stuff that happens on that. But just the interactions, the the whole idea of having a scavenger hunt and finding the prettiest prostitute of the night mm-hmm. is is sort of not a reality that we're going to do a scavenger hunt, but we look for stuff just to see who can come up with the craziest shit. I would imagine you you, yeah. you would have to 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 keep your your mood afloat. Right. And you, we we see the funniest things, the craziest things that people at their worst and people in their most um vulnerable and it's just it's fun. Anything it's you want to you want to share that comes to mind? I'd have to think, but like a carnival came to town and I know there's a stereotype for carnies and it's mostly true. And we're searching this guy for meth, and we drop his pants, and he's got nice, like, tidy-whitey latex with just a hole for his dick to hang out. And the guy was just so embarrassed that we you, know, you catch guys in women's panties. You catch guys driving around in, in their wife's clothing, and they're not supposed to be caught, but they have, they're expressing themselves. And whatever psychology, they're just you catch people at their worst, and you're just like, you pretend not to notice, and you just, 
you can mess with people a little bit, not to the point of really making them feel bad, but just to just to have fun. It's that blows off steam, and some of that Reno nine one one stuff is all all true. Um, Colors is another close one. I'll, I mean, just that's an old movie, but just cops going out and working and just finding stuff. But for the most part, you go to Training Day now. I mean, it just doesn't get. How about uh, French Connection? Different era. Um, yeah, you would have been a kid. When I, I've seen that. the movie. They're deep in investigation. They're assuming roles. They don't. Cops work forty hours a week, and if we're over we're over forty hours, we're getting paid for it. There's no way you'd be out spending that much time in that role. I think that maybe the feds get away with that because they don't get the overtime in the same same way. But um, I'm sure in the role, it's quite realistic. Mm-hmm. But in today's, it just doesn't exist where cops are in that in in my world and my experience of what I've seen is. It's currently being done. And how about the fella from uh, the village people? How, how close is he? Um, very close. He would be wearing a vest these days, so you wouldn't get to see the hairy chest, but otherwise. <laughs> uh, this is from Michelle, and she writes, I'm a 911 dispatcher. Ask him how he's able to deal with the bad things he has to see uh, on his job. Well, actually, we've kind of, we've kind well, of answered that one. What's already. interesting, that's a tough job for them because they, they're on the phone with somebody. A lot of our communication is nonverbal. They say, well, 98% of all communication is nonverbal. You're on the phone, and they're staring at a, a monitor trying to hear what people are saying, and then, okay, uh, oh, now it's hung up. They don't get to figure out what actually happened. They're getting such a one side. They hear a panicked officer on the radio. They're trying to manage a pursuit. They're, it's so, so much of lack of control from what they do have to do they can send us to do things they can give us information but to the keyboard they can't give us control i think that's a very stressful job i would think so it's like all day long they're given a quarter of a jigsaw puzzle right <laughs> they um like in my department they do police and fire dispatch so they'll yeah my uh somebody's not breathing okay they'll walk somebody through cpr okay fire's on scene and They've hung up, and I've called up the dispatcher and said, "Hey, uh, here's what happened, and the person's dead or the person's alive or whatever's happening." I, I try to give them an update to give them some closure, because walking through someone trying to give CPR to a loved one is stressful. Trying to get somebody to understand and follow your instructions, and then all of a sudden, okay, paramedics are there, click, and uh, yeah. t- a tough job on. Tough job on their end, too. And they get a lot of abuse over the phone because it's much easier to abuse somebody over the phone than to the guy with the badge in person. Sure, and they think that the 911 dispatcher has any control over how quickly help arrives. <laughs> or, <laughs> what the, or what the officer does, right, right or wrong. I remember uh, about, I don't know, 16, 17 years ago, uh, I was living in an apartment building in, here in L.A., and some guy was fucked up on drugs and he had come to visit somebody in our apartment complex and it was like a gated underground parking and he didn't have the clicker to open the gate to leave and so he just started ramming it and you could hear this reverberating through the whole thing and i think he might even uh, somebody had tried to you know calm him down and i think he uh, hit somebody and so we called the cops, and we're out there, and this guy eventually knocks the thing down, the gate down, and takes off. 
And so we're out in front of the apartment building waiting for the cops to get there. And 45 minutes later, they show up and we sarcastically clap. And this guy just dressed us down and told us basically what he'd been through that day. Yeah. And and I immediately apologized. And I was like, I'm so sorry. I had no idea. Right. I just, he, he says, you don't understand when they cut budgets, right. they cut everything. And we're the ones that pay for it. And we are rushing from one thing to the next all day long. And I felt terrible. Right. And I, but I gained a new insight into what it what must be like to be. It's there's only one of me or one in a partner, whatever it might be, and we can only be one place at a time. And people are like, why can't you get here quicker? And I'm like, well, I, I do my best. I can put my lights and siren on, but I still can't go absolutely fast. There's still red lights. There's still traffic. I can't get there. And uh, sometimes the call sits, and I don't know about it, or they don't dispatch me, or I just can't get to it because I'm on something else which is frustrating to be at a call where you're seemingly wasting time with somebody who's just dragging this thing out and you can't get away from this garbage when you know there's, you know, the entire population minus this one family without an officer. Mm-hmm. And uh, just because there's, there's never enough cops on duty. I can't imagine what it's got to be like. Like when I see something that's kind of horrifying, somebody's out of control, you know, I'm say I'm walking down the sidewalk and somebody's being on the verge of, you know, snapping or something. And I think, oh, thank God we have cops. I can't imagine what it's got to be like. You, it ends, the buck ends with you. There is nobody for you to call other than more backup. You You develop yourself into a role and you say, okay, I am the man i gotta stop this and we have tools the taser is a wonderful thing but we have the tools and we communicate and we we just deal with it it's it is it is intense to go okay i'm going to this call i know something bad has happened because there's gunshots and there's victims and people are saying all these bad things and you just go okay i just gotta i gotta go through the flow chart i gotta get there i gotta do it and there's never enough of us LAPD, I don't know how many hundreds of officers are on duty right now, spread throughout a massive city that this is. But what are the odds of there being more than two of them within a couple miles of you at any time that aren't busy, that aren't on something else, that might not even be on the right radio channel because there's something they're crossing through districts? And it is... If you were that lone sheriff's deputy in Inyo County in the middle of nowhere or San Bernardino County, which is larger than the state of Rhode Island, you could be one deputy out there all alone going to something that you know is bad and there's nobody else out there to the point where they even have an air unit that will stop, pick up deputies and fly deputies out to the middle of the desert to do cover. That's got to be a whole different experience of being all alone in the middle of the desert or the middle of the woods, knowing that even with lights and siren, it's going to take somebody an hour to get to you. And I would imagine, too, the drugs that are more popular now than ever, like meth, where the hallucination 
factor has has just where, where there isn't even a sliver of reality that you can be dealing with with this person nothing right. what's that what is that like when you're is that the worst drug to to face somebody who is uh high on what's what what pcp what, what are the bad ones i've never seen pcp in action to the point that they're actually whacked out you've never been to one of my parties <laughs> I've seen the videos, though. They're quite amazing. The meth just, I think meth just fucks with people's brain. And cumulatively, it it really puts people in a different world. But they're usually individuals. So it's just one person acting bad. That's dangerous when they have a rifle, dangerous when they have a gun or a knife or whatever it might mm -hmm. be or a car. I think alcohol is scarier. Because you, then you get a crowd outside the Staples Center, for example, here in town after a championship game. And now you've got a, the mass, the energy of this crowd, this crowd feeding on each other, uh, lighting a bus on fire after, a, after the Giants won the World Series. That's scarier. Or to be on a subway on the BART system and somebody's reporting that somewhere on this subway car there's a person with a gun it's New Year's, and there's a hostile crowd, and you're trying to deal with a group of people while there's a dozen more of their friends, perhaps one or more of them carrying a gun that are behind you. That results in a lot of stress, resulting in a bad decision like happened in BART, with the BART incident with the officer who said he was going for his taser but went for his gun and shot a guy in the back. That's stress. It's that crowd because you're going to lose control. And you could be overwhelmed very easily. I went out on a group of, let's say, 16, 17-year-olds that are known gang members at a park. And put myself on, did all the right stuff, and was out with them. And they were being dicks. But then my partner showed up and we dealt with them. I heard later that they had formulated intent that they were just going to jump me and do whatever they wanted to kill me. I heard that later, and that had my partner not showed up, that would have happened. That's scary. Wow. The concept of being all alone with people that were going to take you out, but for, here comes the second officer that was on, on order. So that's, that, that would, that's where you go, okay, well, I'm happy I did things right and didn't just randomly not tell dispatch get out of my car and do that because I don't know what I would have done. I would have done my best. But wow. <laughs> a group of people like that. So let's talk let's talk about the the mentally ill or include in that grouping people who are addicted to drugs because I think that's its own its own mental illness and in many ways in my experiences with people who are really fucked up it's like trying to reason with a child what what is the how do you go about dealing with those who just test every fucking nerve and when people aren't listening to you and it could be a screaming 14 year old that just doesn't want to hear what you're saying and it could be somebody who's drunk who you just can't reason with um, how do you do it? You just start talking quieter and start bringing them down if they're yelling and you just bring it down or you just take a seat. No one's expecting you 
to take a seat when somebody's freaking out. You just take a seat. You make it look like this is no big deal to me. You put them at ease. Hopefully you've got somebody else with the tools behind you that's watching over you. But it's it's just a matter of bringing them down. It's so funny that you mentioned that because that's what I always did as a stand-up comedian when a crowd was loud and talkative, I would just get quiet. And then they would shush each other so that they could... You keep a conversation going. You open up and you just you let them roll and say, okay, they call it uh, a simple way is leaps. It's listen, empathize, ask questions, paraphrase, and summarize. Um, I'm listening to what you're saying. I understand what you're saying and I feel sorry for you. Why does it make you feel this way? Um, so what you're saying is this is your problem and uh, well, this is what we need to do. And if you follow that pattern of just just listening to people, I sat there and just let somebody yell. Oh, I understand, I understand, and just not patronize them and just let them get some of that anger out. And it helps. Now, when someone's whacked out, have no idea what they're doing, you could go on forever. They're on meth, they'll do that for the next 24 hours if you want. Right. There comes a time when you say, okay, now I'm, the, now I'm dad yelling at you. Listen, this is what is going to happen. I'm going to handcuff you. I have a taser. I have a baton. This big guy is going to do something worse. Let's do it. Okay, you don't want to listen? Fine. I have cause to take you into my custody. It's happening now. And you just dance. Have you ever had somebody come at you with a knife? No. But the worst thing that ever happened was a drunk guy in a garage went out there once. It's a evening, loud music. He's in his garage, just drunk. I go, hey, dude, turn it off. He turns it, turns it down. Come back an hour later with a partner, and I go, hey, you know, last time I was there, he had a bow and arrow, so just be aware of that. So we go up to the garage, and he puts up a bow and arrow, starts notching an arrow into a compound bow, starts bringing it up, and we yelled at him, point our guns at him, and put it down. That could have been a justified shooting there. I don't want to get shot with an arrow. It's going to go right through my vest. That's a little bit harsh. But people, it doesn't, it doesn't happen as much as, it, as one would think it, is, think it does. And even just watching cops, cops is realistic except for you're being approached by a cop with these two cameramen behind him. It's a different scenario. You've, you've changed the structure of the contact by having the two cameramen, the cameraman and the sound guy with it. But it's pretty realistic, and even if you watch cops, it doesn't happen that often. There have been a few shootings on cops, a few tasings, a few beatings, but not not as much as you would think it happens based on what popular media would think would happen. But I've talked to plenty of people who've, you know, I've grabbed people who've had guns. I've talked people down from, uh, people have had knives in their hand saying, I'm going to do these bad things because I'm suicidal, and talk them out of it. But nobody's coming at me with, you know, the switchblade coming out. So <laughs> Did they think they were in a West Side story? <laughs> yeah, I know. It just doesn't happen. I mean, it, yeah. it happens, but it doesn't happen as much. But we also, by using our own tactics, we we try to anticipate, we keep distance, we communicate with people. and Well, it, so- it, it sounds like... Uh, one of your best tools is to make that person feel heard. It's everything. Communicating is everything in the job. And if you can't communicate, if you're just going to stumble over your words, it's not going to get you anywhere. And the, the best cops are the best communicators. You can't, you can't be meek. 
and it takes a while to develop. It takes a while to to get some some sayings down, and and once you get them down, you roll with it, and people tend to listen, and you experiment, and sometimes you you don't say the right thing. When people are in manic is not the right word because manic is is the high versus the depressive low, but when people are in a mania, where they're what I call there's there's circles and loops going through their head and they can't break the loop and the loop keeps going they can't break the loop and the loop keeps going I tell them that I say right now what I think is happening because you just you can't you've got a loop going in your head and I and I explain it to them and I explain it to them and I go we got to try to break this loop somehow we got to break this loop we got to get these thoughts out of your head it it helps them it helps them figure out okay this is what's happening in my head let's let's calm this person down let's get this person some help and distract them and okay this isn't working. Well, let's talk about your dog. Let's talk about what's on the wall. Let's talk about what was on TV last night. Let's, uh, so how long have you lived here? You just, you, you sort of distract them with different, whatever you can say to distract them. You sound like a really patient person. At times. <laughs> At times. I have my moments, but that's, that's doing this job for 20 years. There's no rush. I get paid. For, I, I work for 10 hours a day. What, I'm here. What else am I going to do but solve this problem? Or at least do my best on this call so I don't have to come back in 15 minutes or 15 hours or 15 days. Do you um, still enjoy turning the siren on? Yes. Sometimes I avoid it because it's... They say, okay, you can respond with lights and sirens. Like, I'm close. I'm just not going to do it. But it is fun. It is a thrill. And I don't go too crazy with it, but it is... It's fun to go down the middle of a road where there's just so that dust in it, and you, you kick up all the dust, and you see in the back, it's just this cloud of dust flying because it's middle of the summer, and there hasn't been any rain for a while, and you go, that's cool. And you're doing 100, and nobody can tell you. It's cool to rev an engine, and just, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's, it has its thrill. Yeah. At times, and other times, it's, I was involved in a long pursuit a couple months ago that went into two different counties, and you just like... I was getting bored because they were just going 85 when you're following them. It's going, okay, lights and siren. And I'm the first car, and there's a car behind me that's doing the updating. So all I'm doing is just watching the car <laughs> for an hour. <laughs> you know, you're just like, okay, this is getting boring. But, but you know, it's it's still fun. <laughs> wow. Do you, uh, was there anything else you want to uh, add before we do uh, fears and uh, loves? No, I have some notes. Um, No, that's a, let's see. I talked about Werner Herzog. That's what, just that, that penguin thing of just bringing somebody and bringing them back on track. Um, I will say that if you're suicidal, ask for help, seek help. You may not have friends. You may not want to go to your friends because you're embarrassed. You may not want to go to your family because it's tough. I know in California, I'll just speak for California, it's going to apply to many other places. Call 911. Tell them, I'm suicidal. I need help. I need to be taken somewhere. Don't feel obligated to having to have do something as an act. Mm -hmm. Don't cut your wrist just to make them take you. Do Just tell them, I have a plan. If I don't get help right now, this is what my plan is. I feel that I'm on the brink of of harming myself. I need help. 
you're not going to get the always get the best cop. You're not going to get the best ambulance crew. You're not going to get the best mental health clinician. But seek the help. Be that penguin that can turn around and go back towards the main trail and ask for help, ask for directions. It's out there. They're, we're required to help people. It doesn't mean you're always going to get the best officer at the best moment. Just ask. That's all it takes. It's better than sitting there trying to fix a broken brain with a broken brain, though. Something has to make those thoughts, those loops get out of your head, those circles that you just can't get out of. Something has to change that. And eventually something can. That might not be, as they say in addiction, you're low. That might not be the worst depressive state, but at least you can start connecting to the right person that's going to get you back on track. Thank you. So. That's sage advice. Um, I'm going to be doing the fears and loves of a listener named uh, Carolyn. You want to start, Andy? I'll start. Um, I'll, I'll say that most of my fears come from the, the waking up in a cold sweat. Some of these just mm-hmm. where my fear comes from. Losing control of a scene, having a group of people and just losing control, not being able to corral these people and knowing it's just not going well. First fear. Uh, Carolyn says, my older daughter lives far away and, and dates someone with anger issues and I'm afraid she will get killed and I won't know about it for weeks or months. Uh, I fear because I know I can't protect her. Letting down my peers. Doing something and not being quick enough, not doing the right thing, and just being sort of ostracized amongst my peers for not doing the right thing. I would imagine that would be a really deep and profound fear for a police officer. It's performance. It's the quarterback not throwing the pass or the receiver not catching the football. With the stakes a thousand times bigger than a football game. Right. Forever being a pariah. Yeah. It's a constant performance fear. Carolyn says, I fear that my older daughter is going to keep getting progressively larger uh, gauges in her ears and she'll eventually have those giant holes that make people wince and look away. A fear in the middle of the night when I wake up in a cold sweat is having been caught doing something criminal and I know <laughs> I know it's over and I'm going to go to prison forever and just the heart's beating and I can't I can't break that. I break a loop, so to speak, from that dream and get back to reality of, oh my gosh, it's all over. I've, I'm done. The career's done. The, there's no retirement. There's no medical. And I'm going to be in prison. Wow. <laughs> Carolyn says, um, I worry about the pot smokers my older daughter lives with and what she's doing now. I fear that my older daughter will keep dating people because she feels compassion for them rather than an intense and loving connection. Losing my ability to run and just get out there and take my mind off everything and just run. Your your relief valve. Um, I fear that my older daughter will always be in a frustrating and unwarding, unrewarding minimum wage job because she si- skipped college. Losing my eyesight and just living in a fuzzy, hazy world and not being able to see things clearly. Oh, that's a good one. Uh, I fear that my older daughter will keep drifting and not be happy and that she'll keep blaming other people and bad luck for her circumstances. She's got a lot of, uh, most of her fears are about her her daughters. Yeah. 
I don't know how to solve that. <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah. That's worrying about your kids. It's what we're supposed to do as as a parent. Yeah. Kids bounce back though. Kids find their way most often. And sometimes the best gift they can have is is making a mistake or hitting a bottom because then they get a clarity. My next one is that being in constant pain, some injury that says I am in like a back injury, I can't move, can't breathe, and just Mm -hmm. debilitating the rest of my life. It's a fear. Um, I fear that my people-pleasing younger daughter will make bad choices based on what other people pressure her to do. Without getting political, living in a, a marginalized country where it's just it's uh, the, we've lost our a country that's lost our way, mm-hmm. not to the point of something like a, a zombie attack or the road or something like that, where there's just that's easier to deal with. I could deal with no society, but just living in a country perhaps like Greece, where there's no economy, there's no future, there's no jobs, there's no benefits, the government can't do anything, and it's a it's an honest fear of mine that suddenly we're I have for whatever one. reason I, I have that one too uh carolyn says i fear i will always have incredibly yellow teeth because i can't afford to get veneers and my teeth are way too sensitive for bleaching the few times i've tried this will be my last fear is looking back at my life as a father and seeing that i am uh, the character in the harry chapin song cats in the cradle just you know, being the being a parent who didn't have enough time for their kids, and looking back and going, "Well, I should have given more time." That maybe it wasn't enough. Well, you know, my my thought on that is, if you even think that fear, then you're better than most dads. That there's an awareness there. I can that, still have the fear. Of that. that, that you know. <laughs> um, and Carolyn's. Uh, I'll finish with one of her fears. I fear I will screw up my diet. Again, uh, I fear I will succeed on my diet and not be able to afford to get a tummy tuck and boob job to lift up all the sagging body parts and excessive skin that are left. And let's move on to the loves. For my first love, there a lot of very sensory is um, heavenward graveyards. I love to see a sunrise. I love the the sky changing colors and the clouds, and it just it's overwhelming. It's too much to take in. We're just clouds and colors and mountains and And it's so quiet too that's the other thing i love about it um let's see where's her first one i love a room that has a logical and beautiful arrangement of furniture and other items in it i love running on a trail through a forest where it's just just me in that trail and see i feel like in the middle of nowhere i love being able to find things in my giant purse quickly i love being out on that trail and just coming across a wild animal, a fox, a coyote, a, a deer that just, I'm in its place. Yeah. Just, I am out of, I am out of my place. I'm in its place. And it is just, this is where it lives. Yeah. Uh, I love my GPS and that I almost never got, almost never get lost anymore. I love working with a team like at work and having it all work out. Everything just goes in your favor. And at the end of it, you go, that was perfect. That worked out flawlessly. That is one of the greatest feelings. It, it, I think something genetically, a switch gets flipped in us when, we, when we're in those moments. I think that is just something that we are made to want to experience. And I don't know about you, but when I'm in that team experience, 
I'm not thinking about the past. I'm not thinking about the future. I'm completely present, and I feel like I'm meant to be exactly where I am at that moment. I think it's part of what makes humans human. It's working it collectively and towards a goal and being proud and happy of it, not just for a selfish reason. Yeah, and being part of something bigger than right. yourself. Uh, Carolyn says, I love kissing the smooth, hot, sweet-smelling fuzz on the top of a baby's head. That could have gone two ways, <laughs> <laughs> the way that started. <laughs> I love making my wife laugh. I love that just saying something and watching a smile come across her face and laugh. I could say women in general, but I'll stick with my wife. It's just no <laughs> nothing like a woman laughing at something you've done. Well, yeah. something you've laughing intended with you. to do. Yes, <laughs> laughing with you. There's, it's also kind of cool, too, uh, having a, a, a wife laugh at you sometimes, yes. too. If you, can, if you can laugh at yourself, yes. um, there, there's something about that, too. Uh, I love catching the eye of a baby or toddler in a stroller or shopping cart and making them smile. That's, that is, it's what they're designed to do. They're designed to be adorable and have you love them. And just, they are excited to see you and you just go, oh, they noticed me. Of all the people, they have their parents, but they love me. I love the smell of garlic cooking, just the smell of garlic. It's, it's something something in, in me. Better than, than meat, just garlic. The first 20 seconds of garlic sautéing <laughs> is so good. Uh, Carolyn says, I love kissing the area just outside my husband's mustache and goatee, just beside his lips. I can feel smooth skin, but also the rough beard and the edge of his lips. It's masculine and sexy. I love seeing a colorful wild bird. A blue jay, uh, something was just coloring. You're like, wow, that's shocking. I wasn't expecting that. Just a flash of color yeah. as it just, then it disappears. Uh, I love seeing my husband's slow grin when I know he's reading a dirty text from me. <laughs> I am out of loves, I realize. Well, Andy, thank you so much for uh, being so open and honest and giving us a glimpse into... Uh, the soul of one California police officer. Thank you. I enjoyed it. It's it's therapeutic to get to be able to speak. So thank you. Well, I got a lot out of listening to you. Thanks. Uh, when I decided that I was going to re-air that episode with with Andy, I sent him an email just to ask his thoughts on everything that's going on right now and to see how he was doing. And he has uh, since retired. And he occasionally gets hired uh, for things here and there. And he, one of the things he shared, he's, he says, uh, I went to about a half a dozen mobilizations to Berkeley and Oakland for protests and civil unrest, including one at UC Berkeley to ensure that Ben Shapiro could speak freely. One doesn't have to agree with him, but he should be able to freely speak on a campus that's stressed and maybe cement the right to speak and enjoy their opinion. We never had to deploy gas and push a crowd, but we were yelled at and treated poorly by those that freely exercised their right to speak at us. It takes patience and professionalism to not react to the taunting. Uh, and then addressing uh, the most recent thing with uh, George Floyd, he writes, when a suspect is prone, we are taught to not put pressure on the neck or even the back unless we absolutely need to control the person and once the person is controlled, pressure is released. Officer Chauvin, 
I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right, should have then rolled George Floyd to his side and sat him up. It is usually easiest to breathe while sitting up and supported by the officer. When the suspect is having difficulty breathing, the officers need to call for paramedics to assist and assess. And if the suspect calms down, then cancel the paramedics. Simple. Uh, There is a syndrome called positional asphyxiation. Pressure on the thorax, especially the diaphragm, causes the person to not expand their lungs to breathe, and each breath becomes shallower and shallower, and eventually the person will lose consciousness and could eventually die. A seated position helps alleviate this quickly. Imagine being challenged to run a mile uphill as fast as you can. Then, once you cross the finish line, a large person immediately puts you on the ground and sits on your chest. You cannot breathe. Your diaphragm is compressed. You are gasping for air, and there's nothing to help you. That's the closest I can imagine the feeling to be. Then the person sits you up, holds you up, and you can breathe again. Hopefully your body can regulate and you recover, but the damage may be done. Add poor cardiovascular health and a stimulant in your system that doesn't allow your body to regulate naturally. You've gone full force into a brick wall. I've heard that in many of these cases, the person could be in a trauma center and there would be little the trauma team could do because of the blood chemistry and heart damage. From what I have seen, that is most likely what happened to George Floyd. It's avoidable on many levels, but the main factor contributing to his death was Officer Chauvin's actions. Officer Chauvin will most likely be found guilty. In California, it would be difficult to show how culpable the other officers were. Negligent, but may not be culpable, and they will have the best attorneys representing them to find them not guilty. Don't be surprised when this happens. It will not be good. I cannot know how the black community feels. I have always tried to do the right thing, but certainly have failed at some time to be the officer a a citizen has wanted. I hope we can heal our wounds. Thank you for that. One of our sponsors for today is the puzzle game, Best Fiends. Uh, it's a free download, and uh, you can purchase upgrades if you want you know, to power up and get a little boost to get through a level. I enjoy just doing it straight up, and there's a lot of times I have to replay levels. Uh, to get through them, but to me, that's 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 part of the rewarding part. And I am up to level 150, I think. Um, it's a five-star rated game. Best Fiends is a unique and exciting puzzle experience, unlike other puzzle games out there. Uh, I love that it works that part of the brain, especially the visual puzzle-solving part of the brain. And uh, it's it's a nice, relaxing way to challenge that part of your brain. Uh, They update the game monthly with new levels and events so it never gets old. It does not require the internet to play, so you don't need to worry about Wi-Fi access or using cell data. Engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. With over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. This is from the uh, aforementioned racism survey, and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself Brown Man. Uh, He's in his 30s, 
And he writes, I'm a mix of four races, but since I am brown, people always assume I'm Mexican, speak Spanish, etc. I dislike that, but my main experience of racism has been in witnessing it and participating in it. When I was a teenager, many of my peers used, quote, ironic racism to be funny but edgy. I was impressionable and I didn't oppose it. Sometimes I even participated. I'm very deeply ashamed about it. Do you remember how you felt when it happened? Confused, embarrassed, and if I'm being honest, a little excited. I'm not really sure what what uh, what he means there, what would be causing the excitement. How do you feel about it now? Deeply ashamed. This is the first time I've really talked about it. Any thoughts or feelings that you'd like to share? I feel like the trend of ironic racism in comedy during the 2000s may have paved the way for the earnest racism that grew in the last decade. When Louis C.K. throws around the N-word in a joke about a deer, it's bound to make an impression on some listeners. I'm immensely grateful for outlets like this podcast that helped me evolve into a more empathetic person. My journey is still in its infancy. I understand and accept anyone's anger over my past actions. There is no excuse. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, I saw a woman one time, I think she was on Oprah or some other talk show, and she was saying that everyone has some vestige of racism in there, that it's impossible to not have it just because of the overwhelming amount of messages that we've had pounded into our head, uh, subliminal or overt over the many, many years, uh, because it's, you know, it's a, there's a continuum of, uh, the severity of the racism from, you know, little minor, uh, things where you, you know, your, your brain rushes to a generalization or calls up some you know, some old thought or belief that that you have to the horrible things like happened last week. This is from the love survey filled out by J-Dog, and uh, they write, I love it when I've been looking at the clock over and over again so often that I see it change every minute, and then I glance at it and find two whole minutes have passed since I last looked. I got to assume J-Dog is either a security guard or a student. I love that moment in the movie uh, Risky Business where <laughs> the clock starts to move towards 3 o'clock so that school is out, and then it does that thing that some clocks do where they go back a minute. So many nice little touches in that movie. Um, and I couldn't think of an older movie. That's why I picked a movie from 1983 to reference. This is from the racism survey filled out by a uh, woman uh, who is white and uh, calls herself Sir Ma'am Fox No. And share any experiences you've had with racism when it happened and how old you were. Um, This happened about 20 years ago. And she writes, senior year of high school, I was 17. I called my classmate a dirty n-word um but she said the word Uh, she didn't say n-word she responded with a right hook to my ear i ended up with whiplash and a few fractured inner ear bones and despite neither of us being there an assembly on racism and diversity took place the next day lessons life lessons 
Do you remember how you felt when it happened? I do. I felt entitled, almost empowered. How do you feel about it now? I feel humbled. I can't say ashamed because this was almost 20 years ago, but I do feel grateful that such an ugly experience has played such an important role. Thank you for sharing that. Some of these, uh, I, I would imagine, are really uncomfortable for people to to hear, but one of the things that I really wanted this podcast to be when I started it was something that was willing to wade through the uncomfortable. Um, this is from the love survey filled out by the person who calls themselves, I think I've been here before. And they write, I think I'm falling in love with life again. It might just be the best feeling I've ever had. Instead of waking up and wishing I was dead, I've been seeing the little things. Yesterday I wrote this in my phone notes. I heard birds this morning, and I am glad to be alive. I sit on my back porch, holding my cat Fred in my arms. He does not try to escape my hold. He just blinks up at me and moves his head along with the movements of the trees. I kiss his forehead, and he touches his nose to mine. I tell him, Fred, how great is it that out of all the cats and people in the world, we're here together. We go inside, to which cat uh, Fred the cat shrugs and goes, eh, meh. We go inside, and I put cinnamon in my coffee. I ask Fred if he wants some. He smells the mug with curious eyes. He actually tries to take a sip, which makes me laugh. I try to write poetry, but nothing comes out. I forgive myself. I get a notification. It's my best friend, and she sent me my horoscope for the day. I smile because it's such a tender and beautiful thing to think about other people. It's such a tender and beautiful thing to be thought of. I respond, LOL, but in my heart I'm saying, universe, in moments like this, I believe in soulmates. The apartment smells of lavender incense and essential oils, and the sun is warm on my face. I think I'm falling in love with life again. Wow, that's beautiful. I gotta admit, I I was kind of jealous when I when I wrote that. It's been a while since I have felt that about life in general. I have moments of deep pleasure and connectivity with people, but a lot of times it's the moments in between that my brain goes to the catastrophe place and wants to try to prepare for it and that just usually winds up ruining the the present moment but it's hard it's hard uh this is from the racism survey filled out by uh, martha who's in her 50s and is uh african-american and uh, share any experiences you've had with racism uh and she writes driving while black this particular time, right around when Sandra Bland was killed in police custody, it happened near my house by the regular neighborhood patrol cop, white, male, early to mid-twenties. He said that he stopped me because I had run a stoplight. I hadn't, and told him. He said I had run a stoplight on a street that has only one stoplight on it at an intersection I had not been near all that day. I told him that. Then he said that I had run a stop sign on that street. There are no stop signs on that street. I told him that, and I told him that I had crossed that street half a mile from where he stopped me, but not traveled on it that day and suggested that he try again. Then he said 
that he had meant that I had run the stop sign where I had crossed that street and that he knew I had run the stop sign because he had been behind me at the time. My car had been parked at the corner of that street, so he would have had to have been parked behind me to see where I crossed the street. I told him that. In fact, he had not been parked anywhere near that intersection, partly because it is out of his jurisdiction and partly because he had been parked in his usual spot, where I usually would see him and where I had just seen him that day, around the corner from where he stopped my car. I told him that. He took my driver's license back to his car and stayed there for at least 10 minutes before bringing it back and telling me to drive carefully or some such nonsense. He never apologized. Do you remember how you felt when it happened? Indignant. I knew him, and I think I had even invited him to speak at a neighborhood school not long before. But he just saw brown through my car window in a multi-ethnic neighborhood and decided to stop me and make up lie after lie about me, thinking he would catch me for something else. How do you feel about it now? My feelings have not changed. When I told my friends, they were horrified that it had happened and warned me not to talk back to cops because I could have ended up dead like Sandra Bland. He came to my house a few weeks ago while canvassing my street regarding a case regarding a case, and did not wear a mask or keep his distance or recognize me. When I called his station to ask about their COVID-19 policies, the person on the phone said that he absolutely should have been wearing a mask and keeping his distance. He is a sergeant now. I recognized him this time because he shares a name with a very popular black singer who is a symbol of black pride. White parents, if you're going to give your white child the same name as a black civil rights leader, Make sure that the white child doesn't grow up to become a bigot. Any thoughts or feelings you'd like to share? I understand that it's the only way you can think of to get real stories from real people, but it is traumatizing to relieve these traumatic experiences. In addition, black people are always asked to do white people's work for them. But again, I understand where you are coming from and what you're trying to do here. Uh, and the always has asterisks around it, so I'm I'm not really sure what that what that means. If that's an emphasis on it, or if that is a quasi always. But um, Martha, thank you for for filling that out. And um, yeah, I would imagine. Uh, in fact, the the interview that we had uh, a, a while back with uh, Brian Simpson. Um, he talked about the wearing down of his patients and having to explain things to people who aren't of color. Uh, and I would, Im- I would imagine, yeah, that's, that's got to get tired saying the same things over and over again and, and, and still facing a society, you know, if not, not necessarily uh, coming from the person you're explaining it to, but um, living it every day and feeling like there's no headway being made. Uh, this is from the same survey, the racism survey, and this is filled out by a uh, woman uh, who is white and share any experiences you've had with racism when it happened and how old you were. She writes, I went to a grade school whose student body was predominantly black 
and biracial students. Yet the whole time I was a student there, I, a white female, genuinely thought racism was over. We learned about slavery, segregation, the civil rights movement, and Martin Luther King Jr., but I do not recall ever being educated on what things were like now. I assumed because I was a white person attending school with so many kids who didn't look like me and we all seemed to get along fine that we had moved on from obvious nonsense like racism. At recess one day in fourth or fifth grade, my group of friends was playing house. We were picking out what roles we all wanted to play in the house, mom, dad, kid, etc., and one friend and I wanted to play the same role. I told her she couldn't be that, whatever it was, and she asked why. I came up with the first difference between us that I could think of and said, because you're black. To me at the time, it was akin to when you ask an older sibling why you can't have something and they reply, because I was born first. But I knew by her face immediately after I said it that it was not akin to that at all. I knew I had said something awful, the worst thing I ever said to her. And I was so clueless that I didn't even know why. She stopped talking to me for weeks afterwards. I wanted to fix things, but I didn't know how. Partly because I grew up emotionally neglected and lacked the tools to know how to have a constructive, open conversation about emotions and feelings of any kind. Partially because I was terrified of saying something else that was bad or worse without realizing. Eventually, she started talking to me again, but I never felt I deserved to have her friendship back. I don't even remember if I apologized. I always wished I knew how to talk to her about it, to understand, but I never did. Do you remember how you felt when it happened? I felt a deep sense of shame. I felt like I must be a horrible person if I was capable of hurting someone I cared about like that. How do you feel about it now? I feel robbed of the ability to learn something important at a young age because the education system failed to educate me on my white privilege. I really hurt someone I cared about. I spent over a decade blaming myself and feeling shame about it, which stopped me for too long from actually doing the work to understand what happened. Any thoughts or feelings that you'd like to share? A white person uneducated on white privilege and systemic racism is just as dangerous as one who is blatantly racist. It's like society giving you a weapon at birth with no, with no knowledge on how to use it or even understand that that's what it is. If you accidentally use it and cause harm, the guilt and shame you feel from that keeps you from trying to understand what happened. Or the ones you hurt may not even let you know you hurt them because they don't want to take on the burden of explaining what you just did, leaving you to continue you being ignorant and hurtful. I think of Jane Elliott's blue eyes, brown eyes exercise a lot and wish I could have gone through something like that in school. Also, every teacher and adult who worked at my grade school was white, despite the fact that so many students were not. And I often wonder what it would have been, been like if there had been even just one teacher who was a person of color, what kind of support and perspective they would have provided for all of us. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I didn't expect so many people to be uh, so open and honest about their mistakes and the pain that they caused. Um, and uh, I'm, you know, when I first looked at last night, the nine people had taken the survey. I I had hoped that there would be more people of color filling them out. And at first I was really disappointed. And then I thought, no, it's, it's important to, to hear, uh, from 
not only the people experiencing it, but from the people contributing to it, especially those who've, who've gained perspective on it. Uh, and then finally, this is from the love survey filled out by a person who calls themselves pure crystalline garlic. And they write, this one has so many interesting ones in it. I love my estranged family, especially my reclusive aunt, who used to be a ballerina and who then, like me now, never, ever attended family functions. I love watching kids' cartoons that are a thousand times deeper than you would ever expect, like Adventure Time or the Lego Batman movie. I love dreaming about swimming deep into warm water and being able to breathe. I love my old fuzzy-around-the-edges memories that have blended my fantasies with reality. And I love having conversations with ghosts. Wow. I can honestly say I have never had a conversation with a ghost. And I hope if I do that it's a mature ghost, that it's not a teenage ghost. How do they approach you? So, Boo, thank you for those. Those are those are awesome, and uh, thank you, everybody. Uh, you know, I'm I'm really kind of oh anxious about how this episode will be received because emotions are running so high, and my fear of making mistakes, and fear of abandonment, and fear of upsetting people. Oh, that, it, I'm so tired of wanting everybody to love me. It is, it is so draining. I was, I was dreading doing today's episode because I just feel like, oh, like there's a perfect episode to do and I don't know what it is and I'm going to fuck it all up and I'm going to lose listeners. And then I'm going to be poor and I'm going to die alone and in the side of a ditch without teeth trying to eat corn on the cob and with mosquitoes hovering around my neck sitting next to an empty bottle of Hoff. And I want to leave you with that. I want to leave you with that image. And you know you know what? I want to send you all to planet fuckface. That's, I've been, it's been a while. For a long time, I would cast you to hell. Uh, but it gets a little tired sending people down. I think it's time to send people up. Straight in a rocket ship to planet fuckface. Not a rocket ship designed by Elon Musk. But a, a rocket designed by Mean DJ Voice. Those of you that are new listeners are like, What? the fuck is he talking about and honestly I don't know I don't know what I'm talking about and let's hand on that I hope if you're out there and you're feeling stuck um, you know that you're not alone and I don't know what else to say it, it, it feels just wrap it up fuckface Ooh, I'm sending myself to planet fuckface well I better pack my bags I bid you good day and thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I know in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely